We are on 122. Do we welcome back? Do we have any questions or thoughts from anything that was left over? Shall we go right on? Okay. We have a lot of yellow and blue these days, don't we? The proportion keeps getting higher and higher. At least it's a cheerful color. (laughs) Cheerful colors. Okay. Number 122. When I, Walter, Swami Kriyananda, went to India in 1958, Some people who had known the Master during his earlier visits told me, the Master led a kirtan one evening in a private home in Calcutta. The house was full, and so also was the street outside, and the roof of a building across the street was covered with people. They sang and danced in God all night, uplifted in their love for him. Such was the Master's magnetism. Can't you just see that scene? You know, if you've ever seen any part of Calcutta, that helps a little, but it doesn't matter. Just also, you know, I don't think you can honestly say that Indians as a group are more God-realized than anyone else, but they certainly, they start with the premise of devotion, which is so different. And so that such an event could just happen and everybody would just sort of know what to do. And they could block the traffic and fill the neighborhood. And uh, Also for Master, after having existed for all those years in America, where you know, such a thing would be so difficult, although he did make it happen in Carnegie Hall, but still where he was always having to struggle to get people to understand the basic premises, what an enormous uh, sense of freedom it must have been for him. When you... Uh, when, when you listen, when you look at um, the poem, My India, that Master was reciting when he left the body, and how he talks so, uh, with so much heart about what that country means to him, and all the different incarnations where he may have been, but that that is the one, it's, uh, it's just so interesting to me how the human and the divine play together. Because Master's whole autobiography is all about India. It just starts right from the beginning with India. And of course, when Master was William the Conqueror, he probably wasn't talking a lot about India or when he was Ferdinand the Saint in Spain. Uh, But this time at this place with this uh, uh, particular mission of bringing East and West together, But what a sacrifice it was for him to have to live in this country on the level that uh, he was living. You know, last week when I made that comment that, uh, oh dear, (laughs) Navajan just poured his tea all over his lap, but that's all right. He seems to be coping in a rather brave manner, so we'll just let it pass. (laughs) It was a priceless expression that only I saw. Someone once uh, made a suggestion to someone that was such a... Uh, Swami actually made the suggestion that so-and-so could do such-and-so a project and the prospect was so appalling to the person to whom it was suggested that this look went over their face that I'd never seen before which made me burst out laughing. And I said, you know, can you possibly repeat that? And 
The man said, it was caused by the spontaneous stopping of my heartbeat, he said. (laughs) I don't think I could make it happen again. (laughs) Um, Last week when I was talking, uh, I'm always trying, as you all know, to figure out how the masters live in this world. And when I talked about Swami Kriyananda, as his life as Kriyananda was like one finger of one hand, and every, he, the rest of his consciousness was like the rest of his body, but Kriyananda occupied that much. I, I actually was reflecting on that a great deal, and I just want to say it again, because I think that's the best one I've come up with. Because, I mean, I was really thinking about it, like if I smashed this finger in a car door or something like that, it would be a very intense and real experience, but it being the finger of your hand, you can isolate it somewhat from the rest of you, but still, it's, you, you extend into it, and if, you're, if it's truncated, if it's broken, you're broken. And I could see all the experiences that Swami had been through of personal betrayal and the trials of the lawsuits and um, just many different events. They all happened to him completely, but they never dominated his consciousness, but they, had, they influenced, they powerfully influenced how he could relate to the world, just as it would I mean, you could even use the whole hand if you wanted to, but even the finger of a hand and and the pain of it and the pleasure of it or whatever it might be. Does that make sense? But thinking of Yogananda, Master, and his devotion to the country of India and then having to be here. And still, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't overtake his consciousness, but there would always be that... um, sense of the alienness of this culture and his effort whereas in India there would be that sense of total just like he wrote in his poem you know if I wherever I could be if this is the place I would choose despite everything despite all its limitations very it's a fascinating thought isn't it and then this story just made me think of it all the more because what it must have been like for him to just be able to I want to use the word let loose like that but just really express himself so freely and happily. Um, so, number 123. Henry Schaufelberger, who later became known as Brother Anandamoy, said to the Master, Sir, would you bless me that when I meditate, I be able to sit in the lotus posture? I've tried and tried, but I just can't seem to get it. Do not be concerned over such little things, the Master responded. Ask God for his love. That is much more important. I mean, the lotus posture is just... I'm surprised sometimes people tell me that they're really working hard on the lotus posture. I sort of feel like I don't have time to work on the lotus posture. <laughs> but, uh, meaning, there's so many more important things I have to do, and I don't mean important work. I just mean... Anyway, but you understand. But everybody has different in- inclinations. But it's very... Um, In Patanjali, remember, there is that one, don't miss the point. And we, we, we do, every time we... Um, because one of the things that happens to us spiritually, and it happens on a much more subtle level than the lotus posture, is that some little thing will get our attention. And usually it's some um, self-concern of some kind, some imagined failing, some... Uh, sense of uh, outrage at what was done to us, some sense of regret, 
something like that, and it just oscillates in the middle of our consciousness and we can't get rid of it. It's not so easy to get rid of it, that's the whole spiritual path. But, but to not miss the point. I, Swamiji's way of, of just no matter what the faults were, he would always just see the bigger picture and see where it was going. And he always tried to teach us in regard to each other and in regard to ourselves, just don't miss the point. Everybody stumbles along the way and everybody's carrying something. He, he talked about Taramata that way, who was such a nemesis to him. But he just said, if you're a great soul, you have great faults. He was talking about someone else in his life and who, who really turned out to be quite a, a nasty character. And, uh, but Swami had been very supportive of the person and very um, praiseworthy of their spiritual potential, which they squandered as it happened. But later on, someone said to Swami, you know, you never saw that person correctly. Oh, yes, he said, I knew perfectly well. He said, in fact, I was glad, as he put it, I was glad to see the seeds that were in there because then I could help to pull them up, you know, the potentials. And then he said, it takes a great person to have great faults. Which is really, when you think about it, if you have real energy, everything is exaggerated. So you think of Hitler hardly a good example, but of masters saying that he was Alexander the Great in the past and that he had an interest in spiritual matters from his travels to India. Jyotish was talking about it over the weekend. And that master was trying to get to him. I mean, that, that master would even think to try to meet such a person, but he had great energy and great karmic potential to be in a key position Master said that what Hitler did was he acted on behalf of the Jews and the Germans. It wasn't only his own karma. That was his own, as, he, as you all heard, he made that distinction. That Stalin was acting on his own karma. Of course, you have to say it was also the karma of the people, but there was some difference in their personal responsibility. It certainly wasn't good karma for Hitler to have been that instrument. But there's some nuance. This is another factor in terms of missing the point when something, especially if you're concerned about yourself, is that um, God never misunderstands. And, and so even if, because usually that's the dismay of things, is that we meant well but got mixed up. Or we just did the best we can, given who we are, as Swami said. I think they're doing as well as they can, given who they are. Given their complex karma, this is the only way they could possibly express themselves. But that's just the way it is. But we misread ourselves and each other with very little sympathy. But uh, Divine Mother is infinitely compassionate. It's just, it's very important to remember because we lose that one a lot. All right. Number 124. Norman told me, after the first time he'd performed the yoga postures for Master in front of guests, I was doing the postures kind of blindly. Every time I'd start getting into a pose, however, Master would point a finger at me. Some of the postures weren't easy for me, and I'd never been able to do them well. As Master pointed at me, however, I suddenly found I could do each one to perfection. Wouldn't you love a shortcut like that? The master liked having Norman demonstrate the postures because of his strong and well-formed body. He wanted to correct a widespread impression people had of yogis 
that they are thin and emaciated. <laughs> um, Swamiji had the same experience with Master. He also wasn't particularly good at the postures, but when he did them in Master's company, he suddenly became adept. And then ever thereafter, he uh, was often the one Master had demonstrating them, although Swami was skinny at that point. Ma- and Norman was, I mean, Norman was huge, so in terms of the picture of physical fitness and the dynamic, you could see why he would want Norman. Norman, I guess, left, though. But Master said about Norman, I think it's in this book somewhere, maybe we've already come to it, that when he was William, Norman was one of his soldiers, and Norman was a giant at that time, and that he'd wanted a strong man, and Norman was born to be a strong man. Now, look, again, look at the karma. It's like, I, that, that's not the karma of any of us, that Master wanted a strong man. So this great, big, powerful guy was born to be Master's strong man from those warrior incarnations, to fight for him. You know, pick up a sword and literally kill people, but do it like that. There's that picture which we've shared in here of Norman standing with Swami Kriyananda and Bernard that was taken at, at uh, not Song of the Morning, what do they call their place? In the... Sunburst, right, in sunburst. And you see Norman standing, he's holding hands with, and they, they look like midgets. I mean, he's, he's now, he, by then he's, he's not well formed anymore, he's just big, he's a big belly like this, but you know, he's so much bigger than they are. You could imagine how impressive he would be doing the yoga postures. Master just wanted to save everyone time, so he just made them adept. <laughs> but think of what he had to rearrange to do that. I mean, because, you know, if you can't do that, that's because all of these muscles, nothing is in order. So Master just shifted it so that the body would fold up and you would, or stretch out. You'd know just how to do it. I was just reading uh, Lahiri Mahashaya's uh, being uh, initiated by Babaji in the Himalayas, the whole chapter about pulling the temple together and then taking it apart and the will holding all the molecules in order and as soon as the will was withdrawn and how they can all just be rearranged. And the other thing that struck me, which was really amusing, every time you read the autobiography, you you notice little tiny parts. So they're in the palace, the Kriya initiation is over, it's now, the night has passed and it's time for it to go and then it just disappears and they're sitting on the ground and they're hungry. And so uh, Babaji says, reach into this bowl but what appears is butter-fried luchis. Is that what they call them? Butter-fried luchis and well-flavored curries. I mean, a nice meal is what appears. I mean, like a varied and a well-prepared meal, not just like a coconut and a mango or something like that, but butter-fried luchis, which are bread. Is that what that is? The deep-fried bread. The deep-fried bread. In butter, no less. It's sort of like, but, but what a detail. And your picture, they're up there in the Himalayas and they're living on nothing in the cave. But when the food appears, it's something that uh, is tasty. <laughs> Again, what does that say about too much health foods? <laughs> it's a justification for a lot, isn't it? <laughs> but all of, I mean, nothing like that is accidental. Here, Lahiri is, this is Lahiri meeting Babaji. This is the story that Master is telling us because he heard it from Sri Yukteswar and Swami Kevalananda, both of whom heard it from Lahiri and quote substantially the same words. So the butterfried luchis were always there. 
in the in after the palace is just, I don't know of course the palace is phenomenal but somehow the 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 fried bread got me this time through that book is so you never you never finish that book you just keep reading it and then some tiny little aspect of it jumps out at you and but, you know it's partly it's like I think part of it is they're all telling us just don't sweat the small stuff it's like we're always it's the missing the point we're always thinking that our spiritual life rises on and falls on something that it doesn't rise and fall on it it depends on our perseverance and our love of God that's all everything else is just like it's just going to come and go we're going to we're going to so many things are going to happen that are going to appear to us to be um, game changers and they're not really just persevere and love God the, Sri Yukteswar's words the past lives of all men are dark with many shames everything will improve if you're just doing what you need to do now it, that's not easy that perseverance is so, so challenging on so many different levels and so don't worry about butter fried blue cheese it just doesn't matter even Lahiri and Babaji feasted on them in the moment all right. Any questions or comments? Yeah, it's part of the wanting of the palace, and all of which is a little, from a certain angle, hard to understand. But who knows? It was a repetition. He'd been, they said, King Jonica in the past, and he'd had that kind of wealth. It, and again, even just that, it's like, and I think that I think there's a line in there where the divine and the human. Now the words, exact words escape me, but they were talking about how the two worlds come together. That the beauty and the, the marvelousness of this world and the divine world, they meet. Again, it's the same thing. Here they are. They're living in the dirt. They were ju- they're just sitting in the dirt after the palace goes away. But there's the palace too. This is also, he's also talking about our path, which Swamiji has emphasized at certain points. You know, some paths, some, the whole tone of some paths are just more austere, more, more world-rejecting might be the way to say it. But Master's been King William, King Ferdinand, Swami was Henry, Swami was Alfonso. These were big world leaders and men of wealth and men of power in the world who acted in the world in a big way. And even Yogananda... He went to Los Angeles and he bought a hotel at the top of a hill and he bought a, a retreat on the ocean. He didn't, and everything was nicely done. It wasn't fancy, but it was all nicely done, just like Swami did it. It wasn't this really austere, um, plain uh, reality, very different. And, and so he's, they're, all, they're always talking about our path. Why did, why did he even materialize a palace? I mean, there uh, th- there's a hint of various realities in there. I don't, you don't really know quite where to go with it. But it's telling you something about how to be in tune with our path. Even the fact that Master wore his hair long instead of shaving his head, you know, the two different ways of relating. But he always kept his hair long. It was just sort of a reaching out to the world. When you shave it, it's a slightly different bob, as it were. Okay. 125. To the nuns, he once said, Ladies, 
Don't devote too much time to dressing or caring for your appearance, lest you fall into temptation. He didn't mean they should be indifferent to the normal standards of neatness and good taste, but only that they should not be over-solicitous in these matters. You know, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have habits. The, the wearing of the saris and all of that came later. When Master was there, they all just, everybody just dressed in ordinary clothes. He didn't want them at that time to distinguish themselves, much like the shift that took place at Ananda, when you think about it. So they just had to dress every day, and you see pictures, some of the older pictures especially, and they're all just, and in those days, and they're all just dressed as, they, as women dressed at the time. And in those days, everybody was a lot more formal, because you read in Durgamata's book that when she went to work on making the house car for Master, she had to dress in more or less in, men, in men's work clothes. And it was a, a bit of a tapasya for have to, her have to go down the street and on the streetcar dressed in those clothes. Because it just, women just didn't dress like that. There was a, a good taste and a protocol and a convention. So there was more. They had to keep it up more than, than people do nowadays. But it's also, he didn't say that to the men. But it, it, I've often contemplated, and this has always been a puzzlement up to me since childhood, because being born in a female body, I never actually understood how to be a girl. I learned to be a girl from the color um, consultant we had, Allie McKeon, after I moved here in the late 80s. And she, she sort of gave me a, a brief tutorial on how to be a girl which is, you know, earrings and hairstyle and makeup and the right dresses. It's not that I was unconscious or completely incapable, but I, I could never understand it. And to this day, I really don't. When I see how differently women will, will present themselves from the way men present themselves, it still puzzles me. I, I, I can't figure out how you can just spend, I mean, nobody in our world spends as much time as some women do. But just, you know, really, hair, makeup, face, all of that. I, once when I was traveling, when I was first lecturing, I went to a department store because I didn't know anything about makeup at all. And, uh, and I had a very strong aversion to it. And so I had one of those uh, department store places make up my face. And I thought that she was a very nice-looking woman, but it had nothing to do with me. I mean, it was such a, a startling shift. It, it, it just was like somebody else in the mirror, and I couldn't think why I wouldn't rather be myself. Um, so there's a, something in the female consciousness. Swami, it's now, every, now even men are were using nail polish, but Swami once commented that, about women with colored toes, toenails, he just said, no man would ever even think of doing it. And he just, but he just said it. Now I've seen men more recently because everything is changing. Occasionally I see men with their toenails painted, usually black, but nonetheless. But it was just his saying that. He, he was just commenting about the, the, the female, uh, whatever it is. And it's a master was, don't fall into it, ladies. But he put it nicely, the normal standards of neatness and good taste. But don't go beyond that, lest you fall into the temptation to what? To identify with your body, to become 
proud of it, to become vain, to become self-conscious. I mean, there's a thousand temptations. To, to emphasize the gender, which if you're, if you're trying to be a monastic, you're trying to transcend gender. You don't want to be always emphasizing that you're male or female. But within the normal standards of neatness and good taste, so it's always in moderation. Very interesting. Swami always appreciated it when we dress nicely because, as he always put it, I have to look at you or other people have to look at you and it's, it's inconsiderate for you to be an eyesore, <laughs> which is true. Plus, I, if you're too careless, it has low vibrations. So, I mean, to, be genu- to genuinely transcend it is different. People who genuinely transcend it are like, the Buddhist nuns, you know, his hair is cut really short and then they wear the habit. And, or, or that kind of transcending it where you're within the normal standards of neatness and good taste, but you've simply dropped out of the game completely, which is a whole nother thing. So, number 126. Yes, Saranya. Do we have a microphone that's working? Oh, Okay. Sister Gyanamata moved there when she was in her 60s and she died when she was 82, so she died in 1951. Um, So she she adopted it as soon as she came. It was her own personal decision when she came. That there she was and she was starting this new life and she was Sister Gyanamata, so she created her own habit. Because no one else wore anything like that, but she did. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know that you see the headpiece in that one picture. In most photographs, though, she's not wearing it. In most photographs, isn't that so? She just has her normal little white head showing, but she has some kind of a, a duster on or something that looks like. You can just see her deciding that she was leaving the world behind and she was done with that and she wanted to assume the attitude of a a nun in a monastery. Before we had this, this plucking at this because it's blue, before we turned blue in 2009, I I many times considered whether I wanted to adopt something, but I, I never felt it was entirely sincere. I mean, it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't an inner prompting to do so. And to, to have done so would have been a little bit of an affectation and I wouldn't have felt comfortable. Um, Van Mali Devi from India, she's a the devotee of Krishna, and she just made up her own. She wears lavender in honor of Krishna, and she always dresses in lavender. And she you know, just wears a, a very simple Indian-style garb, a skirt and a kurta, but it's just completely of her own making. She just made the decision that's how she wanted to be. And when I spent time with her is when I thought, gee, that's nice. <laughs> But I couldn't bring myself to do it, nor did it feel appropriate. <laughs> well, he gave sannyas to Rajasi. Did he... Uh, Dayamata got sannyas. Did she get it from Rajasi or from Master? Because it was confirmed by the Shankaracharya, but not given to her by the Shankaracharya. So, Master? Master made her a sister. Yeah, that's, it, seems, it seems probable. And Sister Gyanamata was made a sannyasi by Master. Oh, the, they don't... Okay, the question was, 
why didn't Yogananda make any more swamis? SRF, Master, now that you mentioned, he called him Rajasi Janakananda. I don't know where Daya, Daya Mata, she was sister Daya. They called them sister and brother. They used the Western terms instead of the term Swami. I've never heard... I've never heard Swami Kriyananda comment about why they didn't use the word Swami and how, what, whether Master was engaged in that decision. She was... Sister Gyanamata was sister always. Maybe they just felt it was easier in America to just be sister and brother. And then after Daya went to India in 1958-59, whenever it was, in India, Mata is a more, mother is a more commonly honorific. So it, they felt that, that it was more appropriate as the leader of the Sangha that she should be Mata rather than sister. So then they came back and the major women be, all became Mata. Durga Mata, Ananda Mata, Marinalini Mata, Mukti Mata, um, but, the, but it was sort of like a, an elevation from just being a sister. Only some of them became Mata. And the brothers never became Papa <laughs> or Baba. Um, and, they never, and they never switched to Swami. They just have always, even to this day, still brother and sister. To be more Western, I presume. When Swami Kriyananda went to India in 1958, he went as brother Kriyananda, but he was Swami Kriyananda, and in India it just made more sense because he, he didn't want to be perceived as a Christian, which if you call yourself brother in India, you're more likely to be perceived as part of the Christian church. And since he was a Swami, it just made more sense to call himself that. But he was still brother Kriyananda as far as SRF was concerned. But when he was... Um, I think he, he himself, well, he was expelled from India, and by that point he had become Swami Kriyananda. And brother, in a sense, I'm just thinking this through, was essentially the SRF monastic order from which he had been expelled. He was no longer a brother in that order, but he was still a sannyasi in himself. So probably those things influenced him. Plus his affection for India but I think it was probably more a considered decision that it was the more appropriate title from then on. It was becoming more acceptable in America, but I don't think he was thinking like that at that time. Yeah. Okay. Number 126. Oh. Master, told us that, Master told us this story. I had a vision when I was young in which I saw myself married my wife was sleeping beside me. I was appalled. <laughs> How dare you, I cried indignantly. This body belongs to God. Sitting up, I took a sword in my hand and began to cut off my arm piece by piece. I was determined to destroy my whole body. Just then I woke up and found that I was striking my arm with the side of my palm. Oh, what a relief it was to find I wasn't married after all. Joyfully, I exclaimed again, this body belongs to God. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> you can see what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. And just, there are many things about that. Of course, Swami's uh, master's just telling us sort of how he viewed things. Remember when he was younger and 
Ananta had his horoscope done and said that there would be three weddings and three marriages in his life. And Master, you're twice a widower, you'll marry three times. And Master just said, absolutely not. And burned the horoscope and put the ashes in a bag outside of Ananta's room. Because for him, he just absolutely knew that that was not the path that he was meant to walk. And then, so he has a vision in which somehow or another, and this is what he's saying when he says, how dare you, this body belongs to God, he's, he's speaking to himself, and that's why he starts cutting his own body up. Is one of those dreams where you imagine that you've transgressed in some terrible way. And I, I don't know if you all have had those dreams, but I've had them. I've had them. To me, they often feel like uh, errors, a past life, about which I feel so much remorse that every so often it breaks through. And it, the circumstances have varied but there'll just be something that I've done that is so catastrophic to my actual intentions in this life. And there's just this, whatever it might be, of anger, despair, or hysteria in the dream. And then, oh, the incredible relief to wake up and realize that you actually are true to your intention. So I was quite amused to hear Master. And also, he's challenging everyone to really understand things completely differently. Whether or not it actually applies to us at this point is a different question. But the fact that it is the path is something we have to have the courage both to acknowledge and then also to be at peace with wherever we stand in relation to it, but not to pretend, but just to know and to just imagine what would it feel like to be so upset about being married that you'd rather cut your body to pieces than remain so. Well, that reminds me in the reverse. Uh, Winston Churchill, who was um, quite known for his clever remarks, there's all these, actually I read something somewhere about how the British are the best at the, at the, at the witty uh, uh, insult. And there's this, there was some woman with whom Winston Churchill had a, an ongoing terrible feud and she was some terrible woman. And she said to him, they were sitting, they were at a social function and something happened and she was totally offended by him. And she said, sir, if you were my husband, I would put poison in your coffee. He said, madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> <laughs> So, slightly off the subject, but it reminded me, coming from a slightly different level. Master saying death before dishonor. Winston Churchill is just saying I couldn't bear it. Quite different, but worth, worth noting. Okay. Number 127. During the last months of the Master's life, someone gave him an expensive Cadillac car he referred to it several times as his hangman's dinner. You know, he explained, when someone is about to be executed by hanging, it is traditional to give him the best dinner possible. Divine Mother wanted, as a send-off, to give me something special because my work in this lifetime is finished. Again, once again, there's a whole lot in, this, uh, in these readings about how this world was just a playground for Master. Someone gives him an expensive Cadillac car. First of all, you know, why and who, what kind of an inspiration came to someone to give him 
a car, which you can see, but God also inspiring someone to give him a Cadillac car. And Master accepting it, but perceiving it, perceiving that the whole reason this car came to me, like, like everything on the planet for him was, it looked completely different to him. Nothing looked as it looks to us, but he knew that this was a sign from Divine Mother. Or he knew in his own heart that he was nearly done and Master, uh, Divine Mother was playing with him. I mean, like to reward him with a Cadillac car. It's not like he really cared. But still, here it is. It's the hangman's dinner. You're almost done. You're almost about to be executed. You've finished. So here's the best car possible that you can have. Funny world, isn't it? And also, there he was. He drove around in a Cadillac car for a time. Um, he tells the other story elsewhere about having the very expensive coat and hat and always feeling so uncomfortable because they were of such value until he managed to arrange for the coat to be stolen. <laughs> Just he knew it was about to be taken away from him. And once again, people strive their whole lives to have a fancy car. And for a master who's just living in such another dimension, it's wonderful to contemplate. Any comments or questions? Yes, Tom. Um, there's a woman in Los Angeles who has connections with the car industry and at the end of Swamiji's life, she very carefully arranged to give him this really nice car which he actually never used and it's become Jyotish's car. And in fact, I mean, they, they were returning it to her, but she said, no, I bought this and now I think it's yours, which is a great help to them because when it's so comfortable to drive around in. And, but it's, it's not fancy. It's not fancy looking, but it's a very fancy car. Yeah, because of her contact. She bought for Swamiji the most comfortable, best car she could get for him, which was very generous. But you're right, if you're thinking from the hangman's dinner point of view, I believe he used it. If he used it at all, he used it just a little. Because he, he left here in September and uh, left his body in March. And he didn't take it overseas with him. I can't recall whether he was driving it in September or not. So, but Jyotish drove it down this weekend. And they, they didn't want to accept it, but she insisted. It's appropriate because uh, none of us are so young anymore. <laughs> And beyond, uh, I remember when Swamiji was buying a car and the car he really liked was like a Buick, it's a big Buick sedan or something like that, not a Cadillac, but a, uh, and the brochure for it though, he said all the people in the brochure looked so proud of themselves because they were in this car. He decided he just didn't want to be associated with that consciousness, so he bought another one, a different one, that, was, that had less arrogant people in the brochure. <laughs> he thought, if this is how they're selling it, this is not really a consciousness. But because he, his hips always hurt him, it, uh, he needed a really comfortable car, and that was the best one in that respect. But he, he came down a step because of that. Funny. You never know what's influencing people. Okay, number 128. The Master assumed whatever attitude was appropriate to the situations before him. When he was doing business, he was conscientiously businesslike. It must have been affecting to watch. Giving rather than taking was so intrinsic to his whole nature. 
He returned one evening to Mount Washington after an outing during which he had been to an antique shop and purchased a few umbrellas. Interestingly, the master did have one or two little hobbies of this sort. It was as if to hold his interest in this world. Teaching and writing took him to a higher, more abstract consciousness and left him with the need to ground himself in something more mundane. I've learned that this is, in fact, a common feature in the lives of many people whose activities are largely mental or, above all, spiritual. Another hobby of the Master's was collecting opals, which reminded him, he said, of the opalescent light of the astral world. On the above-mentioned occasion, he had bargained carefully, trying always to get a good price. After completing his transactions, however, he ceased to be the conscientious buyer. Gazing about him now, he told us with sympathy afterwards, I saw what a poor shop that man had and gave him more money than I'd saved while bargaining with him. He said to me, You are a gentleman, sir, and he gave me in return an especially fine umbrella. The master paused a moment in reflection, then commented, What a poor-looking floor that man had in his shop. I think I will buy him a new linoleum floor covering. Always, his first emphasis was on human and spiritual rather than practical material values. To him, every stranger was a dear friend in God. That's such a sweet story. You can almost feel as you read it, too, the kind of... Imagine a man who runs an antique store. He's probably just barely eking out a living. And he, you, know, it's just, you can just see what the whole story is. And he had the karma to be in contact with Master. And Master has a desire to give to him. How can he give to this man? But can, can you imagine how that man felt when one of his customers, you know, somebody comes in to put a new floor in his store because one of his customers feels that he needs it? I just, how... Uh, how rare it is to be loved. You know, we're, we're all so uh, uh, hungry for that. And when Master really put that out to people, you can just imagine what, what a rolling effect over such a long period of time that that would have and that the man had somehow magnetized to him um, that response from Master. It's really... Um, quite astonishing to contemplate. One of Master's whispers from eternity. Swamiji writes in the introduction to Whispers from Eternity that Swamiji says that more than any other book, Whispers from Eternity shaped Swami's spiritual life. And when you read that book carefully, or casually, either way, you realize that every, every aspect of life the right attitude toward every aspect of life is described in that book. Because he has a prayer for whatever it might be, but in telling you how to pray for it, he's telling you what your attitude should be toward it because we need to pray with the consciousness that we're trying to attract. That's why we, you know, we have to pray with devotion and we have to pray with faith because that's what we're trying to attract. And if we if we put ourselves on that vibration. And one that I've always remembered because it's so vividly different than the ordinary way of thinking is that Master talking about money and prosperity. He says, teach me to spend for others 
with the same joy that I spend for myself. And that's always sort of been and always sticks in the back of my mind every time opportunities like that come. Am I as happy to buy it for you as I would be to buy it for myself? If I'm willing to buy it for myself, would I also be willing to buy it for you? And here Master has this. It's like everyone to him, there was no strangers. Everyone was a friend in God. So here's this man he meets in a store. He has a need. Master can fulfill it. And there's no hesitation. Remember in... in, uh, is it in Mejido or in Swami's book about the motorcycle that Master had with the sidecar? And then there was a friend who, who Master could tell wanted it. And so he just gave it to him. With the same joy that he'd had it, he now gave it to the other person to enjoy. That's really, that's true freedom. It has to be sincere and it has to be really genuine, not an affectation. But if it is, imagine how free that is. So, let's take a few minutes break. Tom was commenting about how expansive God's consciousness is, and the only thing I can say is yes. That's why there's all these, uh, you know, there's different stories which we've read some of in here about people mm-hmm. desiring to have cosmic experiences, and those who have those experiences just saying, it's not a good idea. You really are not ready for it. You couldn't handle it. I, I just, you can't even put your mind around such things. You just try to be a good devotee and figure it'll come clear when it comes clear. But you know, see, already, and this is how I think about it, not that it's really comparable, but already perception of life is so different. We're, you know, talking about the hangman's Cadillac and... Uh, master cutting up his body rather than find himself with a wife. Just, it's just such a different perception. I, I was realizing because of my advancing years um, that I really did escape from a lot of the things that I thought might have trapped me when I was younger. Not actually because I desired them, but because I feared I would fall into an ordinary life for lack of finding a doorway to a more meaningful one. Of course, I I did find the doorway very early, but the fear of ending up at this point in my life with nothing except a mundane existence was very intense when I was young, and I think it's, it's still in me somewhere because the gratitude for that not having happened is so intense and a, a certain um, exhalation at this point, you know. It's like, I really, I made it. But I know that what I would have considered to be a total failure in my life would be for many people a total victory. just depends on your perspective. And it's not, I'm not casting aspersions because it's just a question of where you're standing and what's forward for you. And for many people to push toward something that I wanted to push away from, and who knows, you know, what life after life will be. I'm, I'm by no means finished. But that was the particular trajectory this time. So I can, I can, if you can see any of that kind of uh, transformation, you can at least extrapolate from that to the transformations that still seem utterly beyond you but you understand, as Swami said, you, you expand into them. 
you don't leapfrog into them. So it's not like, and that's why when those devotees tried to force Master to give them that, those states of consciousness, he wouldn't do it because they had to expand into them. They couldn't just be thrown into them like a stone. And, and that's, I don't, that's not exactly comforting, but it, it reduces the mystery a little bit. I'll just it, uh, The reason it seems so extraordinary to me now is because it just isn't, it's not mine yet. But when, as I grow into it, it'll be mine. You know, and it's, it's nice to, that's like when Swamiji was com- complimented for looking like Jesus after playing the part in that tableau. And Swami said, I'd rather be like him than look like him. And Master said, oh, that will come. And to Master, it was just so casual because, of course, it was Swami, but I think he might have said it to anyone. Because you're on this path, you're expanding, you'll expand all the way because you won't be content until you do. And there you have it. Yeah. Okay. So, number 129. Yes. There is a story in the path which was told me by Devi Mukherjee from Bengal of a time he went out with Master in his car. The Master had suddenly said to the driver, Stop the car! He got out and walked back several doors to a small, rather dingy-looking variety shop. There, to Debbie's astonishment, the master had selected a number of items that couldn't possibly have been of any use to him. He then went up to the counter. The owner, an older woman, added up his bill, which the master paid. At that moment, the woman burst into tears. I very badly needed just this sum of money today, she told him. It is near closing time, and I had given up all hope of getting what I needed. Bless you, sir. It was God himself, surely, who sent you to me in my time of need. The master said nothing of this episode to anyone. It was clear, however, that he'd sensed the woman's difficulty while driving by in the car and had responded to it with divine sympathy. Throughout his life, he actively demonstrated the biblical teaching, Love thy neighbor as thyself. Indeed, he gave that teaching a new and deeper meaning, for he saw everybody as literally his own self in the great oneness of God. Wow. But you imagine driving, driving down the road and just, I mean, he heard the prayer. Just... He must have heard it. I remember being with Swamiji at Disneyland. I put this story into the book about him and him looking at that whole crowd and and speaking of Master, saying, imagine not merely loving all these people, but being all these people. And it's just, it's such a step beyond compassion or sympathy. He was inside of that woman's consciousness sufficiently or, or... expanded enough in his own that her vibration again it's the same story as the other merchant for whom he bought the linoleum floor except just more dramatic but just having this uh, all realities were his own but of course God gave that to him because there are countless people in need and he didn't stop and help every one of them but the other side of it too is how uh, how intently God listens 
even when we think we're not being responded to. He always responds appropriately. It's true. She, she, she needed that demonstration of faith and he needed to witness it. Very interesting. Everybody involved was important. Huh? But you, you sometimes, one sometimes feels the needs of other people just... And sometimes one responds and sometimes one doesn't. But there's two Debbie Mukherjee's and this is the other one. This is not Hashi's, this is not Hashi's husband. Not, uh, no, he wasn't, he wasn't at Mount Washington. This is the other Debbie Mukherjee. <laughs> Tulsi Bosch's uh, son-in-law. That's the Hashi's husband, and that's not this man. This was, this was an Indian man. This Debbie Mukherjee came over to be a monk at Mount Washington, to be at Mount Washington. And, and that Debbie Mukherjee was a monk in uh, Dakinishwar, Calcutta, SR, YSS, but after Master had died. And then when Swami Kriyananda went to India in 1958, he met Devi Mukherjee, who was at that time a monk and then left and married Tulsi Bosha's daughter, Hashi. Okay? <laughs> it's very confusing because there's two, the two names of the same name. All right, page number 130. The master could, if he so chose, withdraw his mind completely from any part of his body, excuse me, from any pain his body suffered. One day, long before I came to him, he demonstrated this inner freedom. It was when the concrete wishing well was being installed at Mount Washington. The well slipped from the grasp of the men lifting it and dropped onto the master's foot, which was crushed under the weight of a thousand pounds. Now, you would not want to have been the guy who was holding that thing when it slipped. I never thought of that before, but there was... Somebody standing there who dropped the darn thing on his foot. No, Swami never mentions his name, probably. That person prays never to be mentioned. His a master's automatic reaction wrote itself eloquently on his face. Physical pain made him wince involuntarily. I will show you something, he said to those present. I will focus my concentration on the point between the eyebrows. As he did so, instantly, every trace of pain vanished from his face. He could walk back and forth easily. Now, he said, I will lower my mind from the spiritual eye. Instantly, his physical expression again displayed the body's automatic reaction to the pain. Several times he repeated the demonstration. Years later, he told us regarding another pain his body was enduring. Last night I wanted to feel pain as other people do, so I brought my mind down to the body and held it there for a time. I, Walter, realized that, that, that then, that just as it takes effort for most people to rise above body consciousness, so it takes a master an effort of will to bring his mind down to the body. He would say, Tell yourselves constantly, I am not the body. I am not this form which changes and passes away. I am eternal bliss. Wow. This is what you were saying, Tom, about just how very different it is. But 
you know, I read an interesting um, story about a man who uh, was working in the underground in the resistance and was arrested by the Nazis at some position and he was so he was being tortured actually but he was so intent he said on thinking how he was going to get out of the situation that he didn't notice that he was being tortured <laughs> and he realized that because he was so non-responsive they kept escalating the torture so he had to um, display some response to it even though his mind was so concentrated elsewhere that he wasn't even feeling his body. I mean, you know lots of stories in battle and things like that where somebody will in, uh, receive a, an, a grievous wound but simply will be too busy concentrating on what they have to do to win the battle until after it's all over they're not even conscious um, that they've been hurt. Which, or... or um, one person saving another, a, a parent saving a child or something like that, can just completely disregard that which would be uh, impossible to disregard in normal circumstances. It's naturally, Master had it under his control. But it's interesting that that force could be there if you wanted it. All these stories about physical pain, I, I wrote in my book about Swami too, about how Swami would always talk about going to the dentist without Novocaine. He said on something I heard recently, a little pain never hurt anyone. It's part of his philosophy on it. But I realized he, he, he does it. He, he spoke about it all the time because almost all of us are afraid of physical pain. I certainly count myself in that. And anything that you fear is, is an unfinished lesson. I mean, I don't like to think about that one too much because I like everywhere, like myself, I'm very much afraid of physical pain and I don't really want to have to face that lesson. But Swami's always pushing us um, to, to, to not shy away from anything. So Master's just telling you, this is a power within you that you can choose to be part of the body or not. And that's where a little tapasya is always good for us. Don't always put on a sweater when you're cold. And don't always eat immediately when you're hungry. Just turn on the cold water at the end of your shower. You know, just do those things that constantly remind you that I don't have to always be making this comfortable. I can be another reality. Um, I don't know anyone yet. Well, some people do try the non-Novocaine route. I don't. I can't even think of it. <sighs> All right. 131. In a lecture one day, he said, Someone once asked me, is it possible to be inspired at will? I replied, not if you let inspiration control you, but if you are in control, you can call to it at will, call on it at will. One time he continued, I was in my upstairs room at Mount Washington, preparing to attend a large banquet downstairs. 200 people were there waiting. Someone asked me just then, when you give us a poem, probably the thought was for the master to read that poem at the banquet, at once, I replied, take down these words. Sitting for a moment, I focused my mind at the point between the eyebrows, then dictated, O oh, Father, when I was blind, I found not a door which led to thee. But now that thou hast opened my eyes, I find doors everywhere, through the hearts of flowers, through the voice of friendship, through sweet memories of all lovely experiences, 
Every gust of my prayer opens an unentered door in the vast temple of thy presence. This poem, as it happened, was the first one I included in what later became the book of prayers and poems named Whispers from Eternity. When that book was published, a London newspaper review stated, There is one poem in this book that we cannot refrain from quoting. And this was the one they quoted. Inspiration, you see, the master concluded, can be called upon at will. To receive it, concentrate deeply at the spiritual eye and the forehead. At that point, then, demand to be given the inspiration you seek. That's what Swamiji always said. He would say to us all the time, just put your attention at the spiritual eye and ask God for what you need. You know, you can't do it, but God can do it. And he was, he was like master in this. He was so casual. If it needs to be done, of course you can do it. You just put your attention here. I was thinking about all of the conflicting cross-currents of ego that um, run through your, our minds, all the um, ideas of why we can't do it, and just the sheer energy level of it. You know, it's, it's in order to be on that level of inspiration, you have to put out enough energy to be at that level. It's not just a, a sort of everything's going along and then you casually ask. You have to shift your energy into that. But it's, it, Swamiji never had any um, inclination to consider his own accomplishments remarkable. And it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't remarkable to him because he knew how to do it. And it wasn't remarkable because he knew he was just, the part that he was doing was attuning himself. And that's the part that Master's saying here. If you let inspiration control you, that's one thing. But if you can just gather your forces, and that for all, all people who do creative work or any kind of work at all, that just that uh, breaking the hypnosis. See, oh, there's so many stories in here. Master hears people, people's needs and he responds to them without hesitating. His body is damaged and he just removes his mind from it or he decides to experience it or he doesn't. He needs inspiration and he goes and gets that inspiration. He knows that the Cadillac is coming to him as a gift from Divine Mother. It's, he's, just, he's just looking at this world and seeing it from such a different perspective. And, and in each of us in our own little way expanding from where we're standing. You know, it's every time something makes us uneasy, makes us afraid, gives us any pain, uh, anytime we feel we don't have the energy, whatever it might be, we just have to push right where we're standing. We can't push, we can't push farther than we are. We have to, to, to blow up the balloon of our consciousness from where it is. But each one of those little battles that we fight is the, is the foundation for what a master becomes. And we can't, we can't consider our own trials unimportant in the great scheme of things. You know, every little turn of our consciousness is what's making all the difference. Take care of the minutes, master said. It's so hard to hold that. But that's really all there is. That's, and, that, and then this is the result. And that's how they got there. Yes, Tandava. You're the servant of inspiration. It, it, excuse me, let me phrase it different. Yeah, it comes when it wants to. It's your master rather than your servant. You, just like you want it to come, but you can't summon it. You're the servant of the, of the inspiration. 
I mean, I know those words are not working properly, but you hear what I'm saying. It controls you, and if it wants to stay away, you're stuck. <laughs> Instead, I mean, you can only work when it's there. It's all part of it. It's having, it's having whatever state of consciousness you want under the control of your will. And not, so therefore, if it's courage that you need or enthusiasm that you need to generate or inspiration that you need, it's, it's not being not being a slave to your karma not letting all those little vrittis those little vrittis grab a hold of your concentration but getting mastery over your own concentration and putting it where you want to put it easier said than done but eventually it has to be done so why not now we start at 122 and we finished at 131 could I borrow a pen from someone please <laughs> 